And welcome into episode number 10 of the Grind on Sports. I'm Wayne Kaiser. Right above me is Mr. Ben Metz. And to our left is uh, the one and only Charlie Paleo, former Major League Baseball player, former Major League coach, and also uh, coached uh, a little little governor baseball uh, here in, in Blunt County, but now resides uh, in the Atlanta area as he is now retired. But uh, coach, uh, player Charlie, as I call you, how you doing, man? Good, good, Wayne. Ben, good to, good to be here with you. Well, I, I told you before we got on air, and we'll just rip the, the Band-Aid clean off. You've got an Orioles jacket on. Ben is a, a diehard, lifelong Orioles fan, so you've uh, immediately slid way up Ben's list right here. Oh, well, uh, I said used to work for the Orioles uh, way back when I first got out of pro baseball up in Bluefield, West Virginia, and uh, we had a great time. Great little town. The Orioles were very good to me. And uh, I enjoyed my time working for them. And we had a few big leaguers uh, come through Bluefield uh, that I got to work with. Guys like Armando Benitez and Garrett Stevenson, two pitchers that I work with. And uh, who else? Uh, we had a few hitters come through there, too. Uh, just right now, that names escape me. But I do remember my pitchers, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, kind of your uh, your wheelhouse, if you will. But uh but coach, uh, really, the way we've been doing this is kind of we we want to you know show and expose people that that have worked in Blunt County or done things in Blunt County at a very high level. Uh, really talk about how you got into the game, how you fell in love with it, the 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 process to get to the major leagues, like what how what bumps along the way uh, did you experience, and then really the time in the league worked with some really nice franchises. Uh, and then we'll just talk baseball on the back end. But uh, let's just start it there. Uh, I guess kind of how how early did you know that baseball was what you wanted to do for the for the long haul? Well, you know, I was like, you know, every other little kid growing up. I mean, we, you know, we played baseball in the streets and playgrounds and Little League baseball at that time. But I, I never really thought, you know, about being a professional baseball when I was very young. Never, really. I was just out there playing. We played it. Like everything else, we played every sport, not just baseball. Right. Whatever season it was, we would play. But uh, the first time, I, I think I really thought about professional baseball. I think I was a junior in high school, and a scout from Chicago Cubs gave me a card to fill out for a for a, uh, a tryout camp that was coming up that he wanted to invite me to. And I think that's the first time ever I thought, well, pro baseball, man, that could be interesting. <laughs> And uh, but before that, no, never. I was just out there for fun, uh, playing and with my friends and the guys in the neighborhood. And uh, that's all it was. And where'd you grow up playing ball? Well, grew up in, uh, in, in New Jersey, a little town, Bloomfield, New Jersey, just about 30, 45 minutes outside of New York City. Oh, wow. uh, little Italian neighborhood uh, on the south side of town. Um, had a great group of friends. Uh, that I grew up with, uh, that we all stuck together and played sports all the time out in the streets and, like I said, in the playgrounds. But uh, Bluefield, New Jersey was home for sure. And so you, you, you 
make it down. You're in high school, so pitcher by trade in the major leagues. Uh, in high school, were you always a pitcher? Did you play other other positions? Well, they they, I could hit a little bit back then. I can hit for love, kind of like the Dave Kingman of Bloomfield High School. You know, <laughs> hit some home runs, but not much of an average. But uh, the the thing was, they put me at first base one time, and I almost got killed. And they got me off there just to save me, to save my life. So eventually they stuck me out in right field when I wasn't pitching. And, uh, you know, I turned a few singles into triples in, in right field for sure. But uh, basically, you know, they, they, I can hit a little bit, but I was there to pitch. That was the main thing. So, Coach, uh, just to jump in right there about first base. So I had a similar experience when I played high school ball. I played for Bill Permakoff at Bearden. Yeah. And he moved me to first base uh, my senior year. And he gave me a book that was about that thick. And he said, uh, that's where you need to be on every play. If a runner's on first, second, bunt coverages, cutoffs and relays. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting. Just expand on that a little bit, the, you know, from a player perspective and also coaching perspective. Um, that's an incredibly difficult task to learn to play that position. Well, it is, it is a tough position to play, but in my case, it wasn't it wasn't about not knowing what to do it was about just getting killed trying to do it <laughs> uh yeah uh I, but no first base is is a very integral part of playing the infield i mean you, when you think about all the places you have to be and and holding runners you know your cutoff man all that comes into play and it is a tough position and it has to be a lot of talent you have to have great hands you know as a first baseman you know, you got to have a good arm too. Usually, you know, to make those cutoff those those relay throws. But uh, no, for me, it was only a matter of safety and uh, running up a hospital <laughs> bill at the emergency room. You, you know, you talk about that, and, and I think it to the to the layman fan, and I'm I'm in that category. You know, you look at first base, and you're like, oh, just put the big guy there, like just the biggest, longest arm, biggest hands guy. That's who's at first base. Probably not the case. Got to be a smart guy. I know uh, a couple years ago, last couple years, uh, Luke Lipsius, uh, he was an aerospace engineering major, uh, was the first baseman for Tennessee. So, yeah, got to be a smart kid. No, being tall helps, no doubt. Sure. You know, there's, been a lot, there's been a lot, you know, save a lot of, save a lot of errors for your infielders. Pitchers but, uh, love the guys who can stretch the farthest, right? Well, yeah, that helps. That helps. <laughs> But there's been some really good first basemen that haven't been that, you know, that that tall. You know, Don Mattingly comes to comes to mind way back with the Yankees. Not a big guy, but, you know, gold glove first baseman. And uh, like I said, it's it's all about hands and footwork. You know, a lot of that goes into play at first base. So, so Charlie, talk a little bit. So you were in high school, you were pitching, playing some outfield. Uh, I guess kind of how did baseball progress to the next level? Well, you know, through my high school career, we, we really had some really good teams, uh, some sub-state qualifying teams. Both my, Back then, too, you're only, it's only, you're only playing three years. You know, we were in junior high in ninth grade, and you had a junior high school team. So you went to high school in 10th grade. I played a little JV baseball for a while in, in my, as, as a uh, 10th grader. They moved me up to the varsity like the last month of the season, maybe. And then junior and senior year, I, I was on the varsity club. And we had two really good teams at that time. A really good state 
state qualifying teams. Um, But I think at the end of my senior year, you know, I was drafted by the Detroit Tigers. I think it was the 13th round. Um, I had a number of a number of offers to go play college ball. I took one. I took an offer from Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, uh, and that was before the draft. And then the thing it was kind of kind of funny that I ended up in the South because the day of the draft, I get a phone call from the University of Kentucky, offering me a full scholarship to come down there and play baseball. And this is sight unseen. They were just going by the draft. Oh wow! And that would have been that would have been interesting to uh, to come down and go play at Kentucky. If I had known now the South the way I enjoy it down here, that would have been a good spot, you know, to, to do that. But uh, I did not sign with Detroit. I, uh, I they offered me uh, you know enough money to go to school back then, but uh, you know my family, my coach didn't feel it was a, a good fit. So I, I went to Rollins College. I left that next year and went to Winter Park, Florida uh, to go to school. You know, being a, being a little mama's boy, a little Italian kid out of New Jersey, uh, being away from home for the first time, uh, I was not ready for. I, I lasted two weeks at Rollins, never went, you know, never went to class. I mean, it's a long story. I can tell you this whole story, I guess, if you want me to. Hey, we're here. We we got okay. the clock on. Right. Well, I'll tell you what. Here, here's the story. So I go down to Rollins, and I I was just dying. I was dying. You know, I mean, I went. My first of all, I was on my first plane ride. I get on Eastern Airlines out of Newark, New Jersey, to Orlando, and the lady next to me is popping all these pills. She's sweating all over the place. <laughs> you know, she did not make my first plane ride very easy. You know, I was scared to death. So. I get down there and I didn't leave my dorm room. I was, I didn't do anything. And the coach was upset, you know, please stay. We want you to stay. I said, no, I'm going home. I called my high school coaches. They told me to stay. Uh, sorry. I had $60 in my pocket. I bought a return trip. I got a return plane flare back to Newark. And I came back, came back home. And Seton Hall had offered me a, a scholarship during the summer. Mike Shepard the coach at Seton Hall. So I called him. I said, are you still interested? He said, yeah, sure. Come on over. So at that time, I guess there wasn't as much red tape as the transfer portal. <laughs> right. So I just came back home and I went to Seton Hall. And uh, and that's where my college career started. Uh, but one, one small story about Rollins, the coach was Boyd Coffey. Uh, and Boyd Coffey, was a life lifer. He coached in college a lot, then went and got coached with professional baseball with the Indians for a while. So now I'm with the Bluefield Orioles years later coaching, and we're playing in Burlington, uh, Virginia, the, the, the Cleveland Indians Farm Club, rookie league for Appalachian League team. And I'm at the batting cage over there and a guy taps me on the shoulder <laughs> and I turn around and I, and he says, how you doing, Charlie? I said, I'm doing good. He said, you don't remember me, do you? He said, and he, and he said, he held out his hand and shake my hand. He said, I'm Boyd coffee. I said, Oh my, <laughs> you know, now I'm 35 years old, you know? And I said, I owe you an apology. I, said, I, <laughs> I did not, I didn't treat you very. And they had a great team down there. Really had, uh, I think uh, John Restaino, a shortstop for the Twins for a long time, uh, played down there at that time. 
And I said, I really do owe you an apology because I, I wish I should have stayed. And that was not fair to you. But he said, oh, no worries. He said, I followed your career all these years. I'm glad that you got a chance. You made it to the big leagues and all this. But I've kept track of you. Huh. So I thought that was very nice from, for him to come up and say that because I did – I didn't do him very do, do him very well. So right did there. did you tell him like that, or did you just get on the plane and head back and? No, no, I told him he had, oh. he had to me over to his house for a picnic and all this, and I said, "Sorry, coach, I can't. I got to go back home." This that beautiful place, right? On the lake down there, the base, a beautiful baseball stadium. I mean, a perfect. I had never seen grass like that in my whole life. You know, we played on parking lots and. <laughs> we barely had grass out there at that time and uh but this was a perfectly manicured bermuda florida grass and i you know just i just wasn't ready you know right so you you go to seton hall you get an opportunity there uh how long were you there and and, and i guess how did you transition there well yeah, it's never a good story anyway i went to seton hall as a freshman was the number one ended up being the number one pitcher on the club. I won eight games as a freshman. I wow. started against Texas. We went to the College World Series. I pitched against Texas uh, in the second game of the series. We got knocked out in two. But uh, I, uh, I had a rough outing in the World Series. Gave up a grand slam to uh, Mickey Rickenback in, uh, in the first inning uh, against Texas. And we ended up getting beat. I, I pitched like five innings, gave up five or six runs, I think. But we ended up getting beat like twelve to two. So from that on, from then on, for the next next over the summer and into the fall, my nickname was twelve to two. <laughs> but the next two years, summer I don't know. Next two years at Seton Hall, I didn't pitch as much. Uh, we had some other guys in that he brought in that were pretty good, and they ended up getting drafted and going on to play you know, some minor league baseball. Uh, as a senior, I came back. Had another big year. Won eight games again. Uh, I think I got beat two to one in the in the regional championship that would have sent us to the World Series again. But we went to the World Series my freshman and sophomore year, and then, like I said, the next two years we lost in the region championship. And back then it was different. Mm -hmm. You only had to win the, your northern region. So our main our main uh, uh, I guess you say our main. Uh, People against us, teams against us were Penn State, you know, mm -hmm. Maine, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, University of Delaware. Those were mm -hmm. the top teams in the Northeast. If we got by them, St. John's. Mm -hmm. If we got by them, you went to the World Series. Now, now it's not like that. They send you all over. Uh, yeah, but then after my senior, I, I wasn't, as a junior at 21 years old, I wasn't drafted. They told me, you know, you haven't improved, you know, you're not progressing. I said, well, I'm not pitching. That's number one, first of all. That does change things. Yeah, and then as a senior, now you're 22, and you're a little older, and they say, well, we still don't see it. We don't see the velocity that we need, that we used to see. It's a little different. When you're when you're 18 and you're throwing 85 or whatever I was throwing, I never, didn't have radar guns back then too much. And if you're still throwing that as a 22-year-old, well, then, you know, they don't see the potential anymore. So uh, I had nothing. I graduated. I had my degree in education, in physical education and driver's ed. Uh, I took a teaching job at a small private school at a town a little bit near my hometown. I think I was making $7,500 a year. 
as a uh, PE teacher at this private school. And then uh, a phone call kind of turned things around. Um, I got a phone call from the Toronto Blue Jays. They were looking for a pitcher to fill out a roster on their Rookie League come, their club in Utica, New York, in the Appalachian League, in the uh -huh. New York Penn League. And at that time, they were expansion team. They were trying to fill out these teams. And a good friend of mine from college, the catcher, Rick Cerrone, was with the Blue Jays at the time. And I think he put a good word in for me to, to have them uh, take a look and maybe sign me to go fill out this Rookie League club. And... Uh, so they sent me a plane ticket, no spring training, nothing. I just had to meet the team in Utica in June, short season, summer league type thing. And uh, sent me a plane ticket or a bus ticket. It was a bus ticket, not this time, just a bus ticket <laughs> for like $95 from, from Bloomfield to Utica. Well, anyway, I took the $95 and bought two snow tires for my car. And, uh, and, I, drove, and I drove up to Utica. But I went up there and, I mean, had a great year in rookie league. Now, I was 22. So I was older for that league. But I won 10 games. Uh, and that was the start of my professional career with the Blue Jays in Utica, New York. And in uh, three and a half years, I was in the big leagues at, uh, at 20, 26 years old. Yeah. With the Blue Jays, now, correct? No. that's There's more to that story. I just... I played uh, Rookie League, then I went to the Florida State League, and then I went to Knoxville in the Southern League with the Blue Jays. Mm. Uh, Knoxville's another story. That's the where KJs? The, well, we were the first Blue Jay double-A team there in 1980. Okay. We lost, I think we lost like 95 games out of 145 or something like that. <laughs> we were, we, but we had... We had, I think there were, let's see. I know Jesse Barfield was on that team, future all-star, major leaguer with the Blue Jays, myself. And there was, who else? Uh, we might have had another player, too, that made it to the big leagues off a team that lost 95 games in, in double-A. So you're tough. You're really but, tough. Yeah, no, we, we there was some talent there, but just it was young. You know, they were just starting, so a lot of the guys were young. But after that season, I think I went eight and six that year and had a really good year. They invited me to spring training with the big league club the next season, 1981. And uh, I had a shot to, to win the number five starting job in the rotation. And it was my first big league camp with the Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida. And uh, they, I, I pitched okay, but I, was, I, was not, I wasn't as good as I needed to be to earn that fifth starting job. So he sent me back to Syracuse. Well, in the meantime, they said they needed that they were going to trade for a fifth starter. Well, the Mets had always liked me. Through the minor leagues, there was a scout, Buddy Kerr, who was a local guy in New Jersey, always wanted to get me to the Mets. And, well, the Mets ended up trading Mark Bombeck to the, to the Blue Jays for me as their number five starter. So he went up to New York and or he, he went to Toronto and became their fifth starter. The guy won like 20 games in the minor leagues, I think the year before. Oh wow! And I went, I ended up going to Tidewater for my, for my first year in AAA with the, with the Mets in 1981. Wow. And uh, that was also the strike year. So <laughs> Joe Torrey and Gibson, those guys were down at Tidewater during the year watching us play. 
and he was the manager at the time, and Gibson was the pitching coach. So at the end of the year, uh, when baseball was back, I got called up to the Mets in 1981, and that was my first appearance in the big leagues in September of 1981. Oh, wow. Go ahead, Ben. You have a question? Yeah, yeah Wayne said you were tough. You know, you talked about that salary that you were making. Uh, we had a guest on the show a couple weeks back, Tony Iruli. I think he was making similar amount of money. Mm-hmm. Probably crossed paths with him at some point, uh, you know, traveling up in the Northwest <laughs> with that with that mustache and everything. So, no, Tony's been he's he's been a you know a, a good guy to fill in some on our sports page radio show, and he's doing a lot more now since we lost Lonnie Herzberg, and uh, he does a great job on the radio show, and uh, he's had an outstanding coaching career and is still going at it. So, <laughs> Tony's a good guy, good friend, and uh, he's one of those guys that you know I miss uh, after coming down south to Georgia. Sure. Yeah, we give uh, we give Tony a hard time because he used to have a killer mustache, and then in, in his older years, he's gotten rid of it. I'm like, that was that's a thing that that would have yeah. kept you young, Tony. That's the Italian, the Italian stallion, in all of us. <laughs> right. So, so you get to the Mets, and, and again, uh, I, I feel like you, you that's where you really kind of cut your teeth and got got off and rolling pretty well. Uh, Played for them, and then uh, a couple years, what was it, two or three years, then you, you went to the Reds, is that correct? Yeah, I had a good, well, not even that. You know, I played, I had a, I did very well in September in with the, when I got called up, and then following uh, following that season, they fired the whole staff up there. You know, they got rid of Torrey and Gibson. Torrey went down to Atlanta after that, and they brought in George Bamberger. The uh, pitching, the Orioles pitching coach guru who had Jim Palmer, McNally, Cuellar, Dobson. He was the guy, you know, that had 520 game winners on his staff that one year in Baltimore. But George was a great guy. And uh, they brought him in. They brought me down to Instructional League at that year after 81 to, to work on some things. And George was there at that time. And then I went to spring training in, in 82 with a chance to earn a, earn a spot on the staff, and I pitched very well. Uh, and uh, I earned a job right out of spring training. I started off that season in the bullpen, uh, but ended up being moved into the rotation, I think, in May, and got off to a really good start, just like the team did. I think I got off to a 5-2 and two start, and then the team, and we just started going south pretty quick. Uh, we went into Philadelphia for a five-game series, I believe, after some rainouts early. And I think we got beat all five games. And then after that, we just struggled to keep our head above water. I think I ended up 9-9 nine and nine that year. That led the team in innings pitched, uh, probably close to the top in strikeouts. And I had some really, some good, some good moments that first year. And really, I was thrilled. You know, coming into the next year, I was, couldn't wait to get back. And then December 12th rolled around of 1982. And that's when... Uh, uh, Tom Seaver was was uh, whining, and I shouldn't say it. He wanted to come back to New York and finish his career. And uh, I, the Reds ended up; uh, they wanted me in the after, in in, the, in Cincinnati. And the only way they'd make the trade was if I was included in the trade. I got calls from uh, Frank Cashin with the Mets GM at the time, from George Bamberger, and then from. Uh, couple other people in the Mets office they didn't want to make the deal but the owner wanted to make the deal 
And uh, so I was sent to Cincinnati along with a couple minor leaguers. One turned out to be a pretty good player and manager, Lloyd McClendon, mm. who's still probably still coaching in the big leagues, I think. Yeah. But uh, that was the deal that sent me to Cincinnati. Was I happy about it? No, not really. You know, New York was home. Oh, sure. no, that was it. But uh, plus, I had to shave my mustache when I went to Cincinnati. <laughs> so it got off to you know, and then I went to spring training with the Reds in '83. And the day before the spring training starts, I tear my knee up oh, playing, man. working out down in Florida. We lived down in Florida at the time, and I so I go to spring training, and the first day I'm in the training room with ice on my knee, and that that just. Did not things did not go that great in Cincinnati, and I didn't pitch well. I had surgery on my knee that year before I even pitched an inning for them, and that didn't. It took me a year and a half to heal up. Uh, they sent me back down to the minor leagues, I believe, in '84, and then most of '85 I was down there too. But uh, and then in '85 it got to the point. Uh, here's another good story. You want you want to hear another since you want to hear a good Cincinnati story? Oh yeah. yeah. You know that you know the the movie uh, the one they filmed in Buffalo, The Natural, with Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They filmed that at the old Buffalo Stadium. Okay, I'm sure you guys know that War Memorial Stadium up there. Yeah. So I'm with the Reds, and things are not going very well. I think I'm in AAA with them, and we go into Buffalo, and I give up a home run or something in the second or third inning, and the pitch before. You know, I thought the ball was, should have been strike three and I would have been out. So now the, the manager comes out to take me out of the game. And and in the meantime, before he can take me out, I'm arguing with the umpire and I get thrown out of the game <laughs> over that pitch. And and then he and then the manager comes out. He says, I'm taking I said, well, you're too late. I've already got kicked out anyway. <laughs> you know, so now I have to, I'm sitting in the dugout and I won't leave. And the the the, the uh the locker room was behind home plate. So I had to leave the dugout, walk behind the plate, and go in this door to, to leave the field. And I'm not, I said, I'm not leaving. So the umpire comes over and says, you don't leave, I'm going to get the policeman out here. I said, well, maybe I better leave then. Because I saw the cop walking down the third base line. So I leave, and I, and I walk out. And uh, that, that was my last appearance for the Reds. Because that night, I get a phone call from the manager to come to his hotel room. And he said, I, he said, uh, I've got some news for you. And I thought, first of all, I thought I was just going to get released and sent home. You know, He said, we've, uh, we've sold you to the Atlanta Braves. To the Bravos. To the Braves. And I said, well, did you get at least two dozen baseballs or was it less than that? <laughs> and, uh, so that, so then I went and, and I went to, I reported to the Braves. I believe it was in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. They were playing the Red Sox farm team. And the weirdest thing was my knee had been killing me the whole time I was with the Red, in the Reds organization. And this is true. I put the Braves uniform on for the first time in, in Pawtucket. And I went out there on that field and my knee did not hurt anymore. <laughs> it was everything. It was gone. And all of a sudden, I've spent that half the season in Richmond. All of a sudden, things start coming back. The fastball, the slider. All the pit, the velocity starts coming back, uh, and I ended up. Uh, I got called up to the Braves the, the following year in '86, and then spent all of '87, '88, and most of '89 with them. 
so I ended up, you know, getting it, it turned out pretty well going over to the Braves and getting away from Cincinnati. But Cincinnati was a great place to play, great fans. Uh, we had a nice place to live up there, but it just didn't work out uh, for me as a pitcher with the Reds organization. So, Ben, the healing power of the Braves, it's a real That's thing. It. That's it. That's it. And, uh, we we don't have that kind of magic in Baltimore. They need to get that back. They had a good year last year, so uh, Baltimore's on the way back, I believe. Now, Charlie, you talked uh, you talked a little bit about your success in high school, throughout the minor leagues, and in your major league career. Talking about those wins that you would pile up early in the season, um, were you more of a were you more of a, a finesse pitcher, or were you a, a velocity guy? Were you uh, what, what do you attribute your success to from a pitching perspective? Well, back then it was a little different. I mean, you had Nolan Ryan who was, you know, far and above, he might have been five to seven miles an hour above anybody else as far as velocity goes. And the average fastball when I was playing was probably about 87 or 88. Well, now, now you look at it, if you're not throwing 95, you're not in the starting rotation. You're not. You may get in a bullpen at 90 to 95. And how many guys you see now are throwing below 90? I haven't seen anybody lately. So back then, I would say I was average. Uh, you know, I was 87, 88 uh, on a good day, maybe 89, hit 90 once in a while. But I would say I was in that 87, 88 slider, mostly fastball slider. Uh, later on, I started throwing a little bit more of a curveball at times. And even if when Bruce Suter came over to the Braves, you know, he showed me that split finger fastball. And I started throwing that some at the end, too. <laughs> It became very good for me, but uh, mostly fastball slider. And I was a starter, reliever. I think I pitched in close to 200 games in my career. And if I had to do it over again, I probably would have stayed in the, in the bullpen. I think I was more comfortable there. Uh, as a starting pitcher, it seemed to, to kind of get up, you know, that, that weight, that nervous energy you spend anticipating that start. I seemed to be more comfortable just sitting out in the bullpen and when the phone rang, didn't have much time to get nervous, you know, sure. get up and get ready. Hey, with the new league in major league baseball, you don't have any time. You got to run to the, to the, to the, to the man. Yeah. There's 20, but see, you know, as a pitcher, you like to work fast. Now, you know, 15 seconds or whatever it is. That's a little, I kind of like the college rule with 22nd rule a little bit right. better, but uh, yes, as a pitcher, you should like to work fast. That's how you're taught. Uh, you, you develop your, the rhythm a little better and you seem to be more consistent command-wise. I always like to work fast. Fast enough that I, I made the guy step out of the box. That's sure. how fast you should be working. But now they can't do that. So, it's really, you have a lot of power. Right. So, so Charlie, you played a lot of your career, most of your career in the National League. So, you, you had some plate appearances. How did the, how'd the bat work in the major leagues? Well, here's another good story. All right. I consider them good stories because oh, we're I'm in, enjoying it. I mean, oh, uh, yeah. We're in Chicago uh, at Wrigley Field. And I started the game against uh, Rick Sutcliffe. And uh, it's a nothing, nothing game. I think it's about the bottom. I come up for my uh, first at bat. Probably was the third inning, I guess. And I'm already hitting the ball pretty good. I think I was hitting like 600. I was like four, I don't know, six. I was four, I think I was four for six going into the game as a hitter that year. 
it might have been 87. I think it was 1987. And so we're in Chicago. It's nothing, nothing. No one's given up anything yet. And uh, I've, I've got the video of it, too. The, the skip carries. They show the, the flagpole. The wind's blowing in Chicago about 18 miles an hour. And I'm facing Sutcliffe. Bottom of the third. Two outs, I guess. Counts three and two. Foul off a couple pitches. Then he throws me an inside fastball. One of my old high school swings kicked in. And I drilled it to the back of the fence, over well, over the wall to the back of the fence of the stadium. A fan tried to catch it. It went off his hands and went into, uh, I think it's, was it? Uh, Wrigleyville? Wrigley, well, now it's Wrigleyville, I guess. Yeah, for a home run. Wow. So that, was, that was my first home run and only home run in the big leagues. But about three innings later, I get up again. And this time with first and second, and, and he throws me another fastball, and I drilled this one, but this was more towards left center. And Gary Matthews, playing left field for the Cubs, caught it right in the ivy, this one. So it could have been a 4 nothing game with two home runs and four RBIs and pitching the shutout. But I went in, I pitched very well. I, I came in, I pitched into the eighth inning. It was one to nothing I was winning with a runner on second base and a guy coming up, a, a left-hander that I had faced in the minor leagues, got him out all the time, and he, he took me out of the game. The reliever comes in, first pitch, base hit, tie game. So I went, I, I got the home run, but I didn't get the win. We ended up winning the game three to two, I think, in 10 innings. But that would have been nice to have a one nothing shutout and have the uh, have the home run to win the game. But I thought that, you were gonna. Say, yeah. I thought you were gonna say when you came up the next time he just walked you, he put you on base. No, he was scared of me. He was <laughs> definitely scared of me because the next now the next couple times up, I think I struck out the third time. He threw me nothing but curveballs. But uh, yeah, no, I had him. I had him panicking a little bit on that second one too. But uh, that was a fun day. We won the game, which was nice. But you know, that's uh, that's a memory. Uh, People ask me about what your, you know, fondest memory probably in the big leagues. It's probably hitting that home run in Chicago. It really are. Yeah, and Rick Sutcliffe, you know, Rick Rick Sutcliffe is an Orioles Hall of Famer. And he, uh, you know, he pitched the first pitch um, when Camden Yards was introduced. Okay. Uh, he, he, uh, he's, he means a lot to the Orioles organization, but an incredible pitcher, uh, incredibly difficult, difficult to get a hit off of him in general. No, no, I think that see that I think he was eighteen and one that year, whatever it was. They won the Cy Young Award that year with the Cubs. That might have been eighty four though. Wow. A few years later. He had some you know, he's he's tough. Rookie of the year with the Dodgers too, I think, when he came up. He was tough. You know, he had a good good breaking ball, good fastball. But uh just don't throw me down and in. Right. <laughs> hey, so so tell me so obviously the ballparks you you your home ballparks were, were the ones we've talked about. Uh, what was your favorite ballpark to to pitch in or, or play in in general, and which one did you not like playing in? Well, I mean, I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, it's the big leagues. They're, they're, <laughs> they're both, all cool, they're, they're right? all great. I mean, I love the mound at Chase Chase Stadium had a high mound. You know, it was built for Seaver and Kuzman and Ryan, those guys way back. Go out to Dodger Stadium, the same thing. Great mound. Pitch at Dodger Stadium at night is. Just unbelievable. Um, I think I think the places I had more trouble with were more of the places that were more turf. 
at mm. that time, like Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, St. Louis. Uh, what about like Montreal? Delphi. Montreal wasn't bad. They were, it was it was uh-huh. indoors, the Dome Stadium. It was weird. I mean, it was it was a little different <laughs> different place <laughs> to play up there with the and we played the Expos. But beautiful city. I mean, the subway clean subway system right to the ballpark. Uh, but the, the, it was a little different up there when you would throw over the first base in Montreal way back before they had the video boards. They had like the, you know, like the dot matrix type uh, old yeah. stuff. Well, every time you threw the first base, they put this chicken up there and they start clucking, you know, the whole time. So I'm keep, we keep throwing over there all the time just to see how many chickens they put up on that. <laughs> you know? But uh, it was a kind of a weird place. But overall, I mean, the city was just a beautiful place to go and uh, a nice place to visit. But I think my two favorite parks to pitch in, Atlanta, you know, I was very successful. uh, My most successful pitching performances were with the Braves at that time. Uh, So I have to say Atlanta was a good park for me to pitch, even though. That was in Fulton, right? Yeah, it was a launching pad. I mean, it was at that time before Colorado came in. You know, it was the highest elevation above sea level, I believe, at 500 feet, something like that. I may be wrong on that, but close to it. So, I mean, balls did get go out of there pretty good. But I, I would I would say Fulton County Stadium, Shea Stadium, and Dodger Stadium would be my favorite. Yeah. All right. Uh, so then, so got done playing, and then we talked a little bit about you you going into to professional coaching, uh, working with the Orioles organization there. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was Mr. Mom for a couple of years, uh, <laughs> taking care of my daughters, Meredith and Angela. My wife took a teaching job in Blunt County over at Middle Settlement School. So I was kind of home. I t- took a little time off, and it was time to find something to do. Uh, so uh, I, I went down to uh, had an interview in Sarasota, Florida with uh, Doug Melvin and the Orioles. And I, they hired me to be the Appalachian League pitching coach. And there was no spring training. I just showed up in June, just like when I was a player. And we were done in September. And then I ended up, uh, it worked out very well. We won in seven years. I believe we won three league championships. Back to back, I believe, in 96 and 97. Um, a lot of teams were really, Minnesota had a really good team in Elizabethan for a long time. They were really good. Uh, the Mets were in uh, Kingsport. The Braves mm-hmm. were in Danville at that time. Mm-hmm. The Indians were in Burlington. Uh, let's see. There might have been a couple other ones I'm missing, but it was a good league. A lot of talent. A lot of talent. And I stayed there for seven years. And then uh, what changed everything was my girls were getting a little older, not coming up to visit as much during the summer. And the William Blunt baseball job opened up. And that was a yes. And how about the basketball governors last night or the other night? What a great season they've had. And uh, it was a tough way to end, but uh, they should be very proud of their coach. Wendell's done a great job. And uh, I still follow governor, governor sports without a doubt. Oh yeah. I'd say uh, coach cup keeps you up to date. uh, Yeah. Yeah. But since the, well, and when the, when the William Blunt job opened up, they, they offered me the baseball job and to, teach driver's ed at the high school. So I thought that was a good fit. And that was in uh, my first year there. It was the spring of 2000. 
1999, I guess it was, I helped out. I was assistant coach at that time for half a year with David Simmerly. And then the next year, 2000, I took over mm -hmm. and, uh, and coached there through 2011. Uh, and then my youngest, Angela, was playing basketball at Georgia. So I decided that I wanted to follow her a little bit. And uh, I gave up the job. And uh, to follow her, but kept teaching until 2017 was my last year. But Coach, uh, you and I have have a mutual friend, John Clay Garland. I know he coached with you for a little bit, and he played for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and, and Coach Garland, uh, probably, no doubt, the best left-handed hitter ever to come through William Blunt High School. Maybe the best overall hitter, but there's been a few good right-handers along the way too but uh john was also a, a talent on the mound he could pitch played an excellent third base for us but really came up as a second baseman we moved him to third uh when i took over but uh just and did a great great job for me uh, as a as a coach and he's got a he's got a young boy right now that's going to be a pretty good player from what i hear and uh, looking forward to seeing him play once in a while so yeah, so he's his boy's playing with my son, and, okay. and he's coaching, uh -huh. and and he shared with me, and I think this is something really cool for you to share with listeners. Mm -hmm. On uh, you had a simple way to teach bunt coverages. You broke down home plate into three quadrants. John John Clay told me about this. Keep mm -hmm. it's it's kind of un, it's not a traditional way for bunt coverages, but you would keep. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd keep that first baseman at home. And then the pitcher would get up to the first baseline. The catcher has in front of the plate. And, of course, third base has, has down the line. So just expand on that a little bit and uh, and your thoughts behind that coverage. Well, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the stuff I did in at the high school ranks was I brought with me from Baltimore. I mean, that was those all the bunt plays, the defensive coverages, uh, the pitchers' uh, programs for, for working out and warming up, we had a book with Baltimore, and I brought that book with me. So all those coverages were right out of the Orioles' playbook is where they came from. And, yeah, we just tried to make it simple, especially at the high school level. You, you, you don't want to make it too complicated. We don't need 14 bunt coverages. One real simple one. Everyone needs knows where they need to go. You know, in high school ball, you know, if, if you if you catch and throw the ball correctly, you got a chance of winning. Yeah. When you start throwing the ball away, that's when things go south and you end up getting beat. I, that's what we tried to do, but uh, yeah, just to make it simple. But everything was out of the Baltimore playbook, for sure. Yeah, I told Wayne today, you know, what I like about it is that pitcher runs to the, you know, if the guy lays, if a left-handed batter lays down a bunt down that first base line, and the pitcher goes running after it, he's going to throw into the runner, maybe throw the ball over the first baseman. So it's it's simple coverage, and uh, I just thought it was really uh, a no, really great the strategy. Only, the only way you beat it is to bunt it right back at the pitcher. If he leaves too early and goes <laughs> to the line, that's the only area that's open. If you can get yeah. it, how many people are smart enough to do that? Not, not that <laughs> Hitter, hitters, hitters are not that smart. Pitchers <laughs> are, but hitters aren't. And, uh, and catchers. Hitters and catchers are not that smart. 
So, uh, Coach, you, you're credited with uh, expanding and improving the, the facilities at William Blunt, the baseball program, uh, over your time there. The field's named after you. Uh, again, what was, uh, I guess, what drove that? And then, uh, uh, again, do you, or is that something you're very proud of? Well, I'm definitely proud of what we help provide our, the kids with in our community uh, facility-wise. But it's not, it, it was never just me. Sure. You know, if you know anything about high school sports, and I know you all do, especially baseball, the parents have a lot to do with it. If it was, that field should not have my name on it. It really should. It should have a number of parents that put hours in down there. And it's not just, not just hours, but put their, their finances behind it. They put their sweat behind it. You're out there in right field with a leaf blower, blowing water off the off the right field where it flooded, or you're, you're putting rebar in the concrete when we built the dugouts, or you're writing a check for the scoreboards, you know, just that I, I, if I named them all, I know I'd probably miss, miss some of them, but I was fortunate, very fortunate to have wonderful parents mm -hmm. that want to work with me and our coaches and the administration to, to build something that our kids would be proud of and our community proud of. Uh, John Davis, as an administrator, was was very good to work with. Uh, Dr. Pack, the, 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 at that time was the superintendent of the schools, was very much behind us uh, financially. Um, the highway department, if you look at William Blunt's field right over there, the batting cage, the fencing that used to be in the outfield and along the sidelines, Bill Dunlap and the highway department put all that up for us at no charge. Oh, wow. And I asked, and Bill said, you know something? I asked Bill why he did it. He said, it's not that I don't like you. It's not for you. It's for the kids. And I agreed. And he's absolutely right. You're doing for the kids. We want to provide them a facility that they can be proud of and want to come and play. And, uh, and Justin Young has, has kept it up. It's really made some really good improvement to us the last couple of years. New new warning track, new fencing in the outfield. It really looks good. I'm very mm -hmm. proud of the way how how Justin has uh, has kept on the tradition of taking care of the field and uh, providing some good a good place for our kids to play. Absolutely, I think Blunt County in general they've got uh, just the in county schools. All four fields are are very well maintained and very well done. Oh, I mean, when you, when I think, I, you look, you talk to all the old timers, you think about the fields we played on. My high school field, the infield was all dirt. There was barely a little bit, some grass in the outfield. You know, we didn't, and then at Seton Hall, we had the, the Fungellini brothers were our groundskeepers up there. <laughs> and they didn't know what they were doing. These kids, the kids now, they're playing, you know, Doyle Holden, you know, at Alcoa. It was, you know, his Dusty, Dusty and Daniel played for me at William Blunt. Doyle was one of the first parents to take over the field. And I mean, we won field of the year in 2004 when Doyle and, uh, and Daryl Claybo and uh, Hubert Garland were, were involved with it, you know, and uh, just the field spectacular, just spectacular. And we, I can't imagine these kids. They don't know what they have compared to what we used to play on, but yeah. it's 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 different. But it's nice to have that for them, sure. Oh, absolutely. 
Well, Coach, and, and when your uh, your teaching time came to a close there, uh, and then, of course, your daughter uh, finished up there in college, uh, began doing a little uh, doing a little radio show there, a very uh, popular radio show in our area, the sports page. Still do that, uh, but uh, kind of talk about that a little bit. Well, we, you know, we, I was on uh, the sports page a few times, you know, when I wasn't really involved in it, when Bob Gilbert and, and Donnie and Lonnie had it early. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the opportunity came about in 2011. Bob was had enough of it and was wanting to give it up. And he asked if myself and Mike Edwards and Donnie Moore would take it over. And uh, we said, yeah, we'd give it a shot. You know, and uh, it's like, I'm like on a 10-year plan. Like every 10 years, I have to find something new to do, I guess. Right. And uh, so we we took that over and we, we returned the focus. We kept, we kept, you know, Coach Trail, Ray Trail was still on and Lonnie mm-hmm. was still there. And Mike, myself and Donnie made up. And then we added Marcus Fitzsimmons came on early from the Daily Times. Um, and then Troy. Troy Provo Heron came on to really, he ruined, Troy's ruined the show. <laughs> if it wasn't for him, it would be, a, just, we'd be coast to coast by now. But uh, no, they, they've done a <laughs> great funny. job. They've really done a great job. But uh, we decided to really put the emphasis back on the kids, really make the kids the center of the show. We, we had two or three segments every Saturday devoted to the high schools and Maryville College. And, uh, we brought the show. Uh, I thought we, we really made it uh, something the community is proud of. Also, the kids love to come on. The coaches were great to give their time on a Saturday morning to come out and join us. And they didn't have to do that. And I think a lot of that goes to the relationships that we we, we forged with the coaches and the ADs in our community, that they were they were happy to come on and promote their kids and their programs. And I think that's been the focus of the show. And that's why it's been good these last, you know, 12 years or so. And it continues to go. Now, is it, it's the longest running uh, sports talk show in in Tennessee. Is that correct? As far as, as the way, as far as we know, yes, they say something else over in Knoxville, but, uh, but as far as I know, we, this is the 40, 1978. So 45 years. Every year it's been on. I mean, we shut down a little bit during COVID and all that, but uh, overall, it, it's been going nonstop every Saturday from 10, 10 to 12. Over at Blue Tick. But uh, yeah. I'll tell you, Ben, I, I was I was privileged enough to help one one Saturday. I think I did the, the kick it back to Andy. I got it back yeah. to the station there. And you tried, you tried hard to make it work. <laughs> Well, I'll be honest, I but there while the show was going on, I mean with Coach Trail, uh, Coach Vallejo, Mike Edwards, uh, Lon Hersbrin, uh, rest in peace. Uh, just the stories, man, and and the way they, it, it's cool because all those guys have their own history, they have their own sports legacy, if you will. But when those high school kids would come on, it's all about that kid, and then about lifting them up and telling them how how work continue to work hard and, and things will pay off. So it's a treasure just to, it, just to experience the, the sports page. But yeah, uh, coach Paleo definitely, uh, in his time with the sports pages has escalated that. No, it's, it, it's been, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was tough to, tough to walk away from and, and, and come down here, but just was no way I can still be involved. But I've gone back a few times 
football games or visit my mother-in-law who still lives in Knoxville. So uh, I still get a chance to do the show once in a while. It's nice to see everybody. And they're doing great. A little different format. Brian Johnston from Goatees mm-hmm. taking over the show and brought some new ideas and new technology to it. So, well, yeah, I think they're doing a great job and continuing to promote high school sports and uh, local sports of all kinds. Not just, we don't, we never did just do football, basketball, and baseball. We, we do did bowling and they're doing fishing and yeah. Uh, the track and field stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. So that's, that's what I think has made us a little, a little different. We try to incorporate all the athletes, not just the major ones. Sure. So, so coach, I got one more thing for you and I was going to pop it up while we were talking about your career, but you kind of answered my question in the discussion. So I'm going to pop this image up and I I was going to ask you what these four guys have in common. (laughs) And then I was going to ask you, uh, did the reds make you shave your mustache? But you answered yes, they did. Yeah. Yeah, No. Well, they gave me the best contract. They ever gave a second year player. So for that, I said, yes, I'll say I'll shave my mustache. You know, at that time, but uh, no, there's a there's a I was with the Blue Jays right there. I'm probably 22 years old, and then you know, pretty young. The Mets, you know, I'm in the middle, right? Probably 26. That's my rookie card, probably. And uh, and then the Braves. I have to when I look at that, I say, well, I think that was my best time as a pitcher was I was with Atlanta. And I look at Cincinnati. I like the uniform, you know, but uh, just. I look back and say, I wish things had gone better with the Reds. I do, because it was a good town, and I still got some good friends from those teams on the Reds, and uh, I just wish things had gone a little bit better. But uh, that's a lot of history, a lot of years right there going uh, way back. I was uh, I was going to say, I think Smoltz, Smoltzy uh, probably mirrored his mustache after you, Coach. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. It, he uh, He turned out to be pretty good. Yeah, he's so, not bad. Yeah, he I will say, as a broadcaster, I wish he remembered he played in Atlanta. But, <laughs> but well, anyway, it's 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 not a t- it's not as easy as you think. You got to be a little bit impartial. But uh, <laughs> overall, uh, Braves Braves are doing very well. I'm enjoying oh, watching. Yeah, I like Snicker. I think he he's got a good uh, he's got a good feel for the the clubhouse. But but coach, talk about that just the last little bit. I know I've been I've been asking a ton of questions. You've done some SEC baseball. Uh, you've actually caught a couple of Tennessee's games last year. Uh, I remember I kind of messaged you. I said, hey, I know this guy. Uh, yeah. But uh, what do you think about what Coach Vitello is doing in Knoxville and, and actually the, I guess, the state of SEC baseball right now, probably the best conference in America? Well, he lost a tough one last night. Boston College beat him. Yeah. Base running will beat you. Yeah, yeah, a lot of home runs. and I, I, think, uh, I think what's going on there now is pretty amazing. When you think about, because I've done games going way back, all the way to uh, what was the coach? Uh, you talking about uh, uh, before Monaco? No, well, no, after him, but before Todd Raleigh. Todd Raleigh. I've done games way back to him when there was fifteen people in the stands. Right. And uh, and Dave Serrano was a great guy. Just just couldn't get the right product on the field. I thought he would do better. But Vitello has really turned it around. I mean, and he's done it with pitching. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he got all that notoriety last year for the kid Joyce throwing 104 miles an hour. Uh, his brother pitched a little bit last night. It looks like the same guy out there, mm-hmm. like his twin brother. But he's uh, the water truck. He's not the fireman. Yeah. He's the water yeah. truck. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. It's a good way to put it. 
but no, I think what's going on, it's all recruiting. You know, he's, he's getting, and it's pitching. You know, why is, why was Vanderbilt so good for so many years? And because they had the best pitching in the country. Right. And I think right now, Vitello's got the th- probably the three top arms in the rotation right now. So interesting to see if they hit like they did last year. I don't think they will. I don't see the talent through the lineup, but it's early and it's not SEC yet. Uh, I think they'll still be very good pitching wise, but I think the scoring more, scoring some runs may be a little bit more difficult this year than it was last year. So when Moore hit that home run last night, and then uh, Blake got that uh, gift triple on the review um, with nobody out. And I, I sat there and I told Wayne this morning, I said, you know, we couldn't score that run. And sometimes that happens. You can't get that run. It just seems like you can't get that run in from third base. And we were going to the top half of the next inning. Um, I'm a superstitious ball player. Curious from your perspective, that situation, I had this gut feeling. I said, we're, we're probably not going to win this ball game. Well, you had a couple things there, really. I mean, first of some bad base runnings. The guy on third. He needs to be tagging up on the hook to play right off the bat. As soon as the ball's up in the air, he tags. You can go halfway and come back. That fouled him up. Yeah. And it got thrown out of the plate. Good throw, good relay. He's you know he's dead. Uh, and that that's my point. I mean the Burt the Burt kid seems like he's going to hit if he keep his mouth shut, <laughs> you know, and uh, and just hit and not talk to pitchers, you know. But he's found. I guess that's just Tennessee. Just likes wanted wants to be the team that people want to hate. I guess. Right. That's their that's their mantra, I guess you want to call it. But uh, like I said, they'll go as far as their pitching takes. They're they definitely have created an identity for themselves the last few years, good or bad, and uh, they're the team people want to beat right now. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be interesting once the conference season rolls around this year to see how they do. Uh, yeah, they had chances to win last night, but uh, I think that said the big thing was just the uh, you know. Running the bases correctly, you may score on that ball right there. Well, and I think, uh, you know, it's kind of pinch run. You know, could you have pinch run right there? Because Burke's probably the biggest kid on the team. So, Well, he uh, did. You... He did pinch run. That's the problem. He put in a pinch runner. And if you heard if you heard Vitello's comment oh, no, after I'm the sorry. game, he said, we're looking for a guy that can bunt. We're looking for uh, – what else was it? He had another guy, something else he was looking for. And the third thing he said, I'm looking for someone who can pinch run. <laughs> he wasn't real happy with his pinch runner last night. So it came out after the game. You know, I, you back through those years, the Todd Raleigh, the Dave Serrano era, uh, Tennessee baseball was still able to recruit good players. Uh, I remember uh, Trey, uh, Trey Cabbage, who ended up going to the Minnesota Twins out of Granger County. Uh, he was on. He was a, a recruit. He was going to be a signee. Uh, baseball recruiting at the college level, to me, that is as – you can never be comfortable in that because if you have a good class, you sign a five-star, well, then he gets drafted. Well, you've told these other kids you want him, so they go other places. It's it's like one of those – it's like a house built on stilts. It's just a, – it's a tough game. <laughs> no, you got to be a good salesman. There's no doubt. I mean, what about the – what is it, 11 and a half or 12 scholarships they have to divide up? <laughs> right. How many yep. players? And, of course, where's the money going? Money's going to the pitchers. Got sure. to. Yeah. You're going to take care of your pitchers, and then you're, you're expecting Tennessee kids to pay their own way, which mm-hmm. they've done for years over there. Uh, yeah, it's very difficult. And then, like I said, you're fighting the major league draft. 
you think you got a kid, he's drafted pretty high, the big leagues throw a lot of money at him, and he's going to go. So you've got to be able to get those guys in the middle rounds that you can say, hey, I can turn you into a first-round pick or a top-five-round pick. Come with us. And I think that's where your focus is usually when you're trying to get these guys that may have big league ability. Sure. Well, and I told I told somebody I said you know NIL is 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 definitely changing the landscape of football and basketball, but I feel like uh, the the ones that can, I guess, gain the most from NIL maybe baseball because you know like those uh, they were doing the T-shirt deals with all the the Beck Gilberts and such last year. I, I think that's a dynamic that again you're not you're not competing with Major League Baseball money, but it is that, a uh, that's a whole nether that's a whole nether story that NIL stuff which I don't right. think is fair. I think all college athletes ought to get the same amount. Sure, absolutely. Like California, California is trying to do something. I think where every athlete who graduates will get a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Mm. You mm. know, I just don't see. I mean, you saw what happened in football with Tennessee, where guys are fighting over who's getting what. Sure. Why am I not getting? Why don't you give me something? It's just not fair. Uh, I, 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 I mean, especially like offensive linemen and such. Sure. I mean, yeah. If you, you know, the quarterback's getting it driving a Mercedes. Yeah, still riding a bicycle with class. Sure. I mean, that's not right. It's not. And the same thing with you know, in baseball. I mean, is your twenty fifth man any worth any less than your number one guy? Sure, shouldn't be that way. Right. Uh, it's just not fair, and it's it's really. I, I think it's really really ruining or hurting college athletics right now, especially the, for the athletes. But uh, that's a whole. That's. That's another bit. That's a, a couple shows more than more than five minutes. I, I was going to say, if I could get you and and Coach Iruli on the same panel, we could just go as long as y'all can take it. Oh God! Well, he's I don't against know if I get it much, also. With Tony's there, I might not get much in to say. He, <laughs> he is. He is a. But uh, uh, again, one thing you guys have in common: uh, very uh, very invested in what you're doing. And right now, Coach. Uh, uh, you're enjoying the uh, the grandparent life. You're down there in Atlanta with your your new grand grand grandson, correct? Yes, I'm here. My daughter Angela, and, uh, my son-in-law Chaz, uh, Foster Charles Foster Goblish is almost he's about 18 months old now. And my phone, oh, I got 10 percent left. I'm okay, I guess. <laughs> um, he's about 18 months, and he is he's a wild man. He's into a little. Little cars now, the little we call those little uh matchbox. Yes, he likes all that and he likes he's already working on his throwing arm. They live on a golf course down here, so he's got a bucket of golf balls and he goes out and every takes every ball and throws it out in the yard. So he's working on his arm. He's a right hander already, I guess. That's the, <laughs> we're trying to change him, but uh no, grandmother grandmother is uh, loving being around him too, and that's that's why we came down here. We we decided that it was a be nice to be around him and share his his growing up with him. And uh, we're not alone. It seems like everybody we talk to down here has done the same thing. So uh, it's all about the family and the grandkids. And so far, it's been neat. I'm sure they want us out of the house, no doubt. And we're <laughs> we've been here too long. We're supposed to be three months, and now we're going on six. So that tells you about the the construction uh, industry right now, but we're getting closer. So hopefully everybody will be happy here in about 30 days or so. <laughs> well, coach, I, I can't, uh, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you just really just pouring it out for us here for about an hour, oh, uh, talking good. baseball, 
uh, talking about just the path that you had through, uh, you know, different cities, uh, different, uh, different career paths, teaching at William Blunt High School, and then ultimately now uh, in, in a uh, very happy state of retirement. But uh, thanks so much, Coach. Oh, no problem. Enjoy, enjoy talking to you guys, and uh, best of luck with this podcast. I like it. It looks a good idea. Hey, thanks, Coach. And, and Ben, you got anything for Coach here to finish? Yeah, Coach, uh, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Uh, I really like the the part about the ball field. You know, a lot of people may say, well, I, yeah, I'm, it's great the ball field was named after me, but you're such a humble guy, uh, giving it back to the community, giving it back to the parents. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that experience and great talking with you. Well, I appreciate that, but that's that's the truth. I'm not I'm not telling you anything different. That's the truth. I was very fortunate to have people like that with me, and uh, they share most of the credit for that for everything. Well, Coach, uh, again, I'll let you get back. Uh, again, cell phone power is a big thing, especially in the grandparent life. So, yeah. uh, until next time, uh, take care, be safe, oh, and yes, uh, dry dawn. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. See you, Coach.